go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our roundtable. Um, first, we want to start off by acknowledging that we would like to take a moment of silence to honor all the 516,268 reported worldwide COVID, COVID deaths as of today. Um, this has gone up 23,806 since our last uh, roundtable on Friday. Uh, we would also like to honor all the Black and Brown brothers and sisters, as well as our First Nations brothers and sisters whose lives have been taken by the hands of police um, and, and police brutality um, and other senseless acts of violence. So I'd like to do a little quick moment of silence uh, for those who have lost their lives. Thank you. So that was heavy, it's heavy on us. Um, today I have two people who I really, uh, one who I've known very dearly and one who I've met today virtually, but I've always been a huge fan of. Um, and two amazing storytellers, two of my, my favorites in the business, um, I'll just say in alphabetical order, Akeem McKenzie and Chase Irving. What's up? Thank you guys. Welcome. Hello. We love you too, Sean. <laughs> I um we had a great conversation earlier today, just sort of prepping for this this round table. And um I thought we were unpacking some interesting process thoughts about your work. And I want to just kind of delve more into that. Um but I kind of want to start with sort of some of your revelations that have happened during this time, during the COVID time. I know we talked, I want to start with Chase because we kind of talked uh, at detail kind of around some new tools that you were trying to sort of enter into your process that can maybe encourage um, more enthusiasm and more stamina enthusiasm, enthusiasm, I think as you said. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I'm sort of reflecting back on some of the productions I've done in the past and I have always used and fueled my like uh, my determinant will with adrenaline <laughs> and enthusiasm for a particular theme or an idea and um, yeah it, I sort of started questioning how I could walk into the next year the next few years of my career and life with um, some tools that I could sort of make it easier on myself because I kept finding myself quite depleted after shoots and and uh, either tired or sleep deprived or um, sort of disconnected. And I wanna be able to stay really connected to the material that I'm working with and the people that I'm working with um, and staying present in those kind of things. and. Um, so I think it sort of came down to coming up with particular devices that I could lean on when I'm, I'm um, being creative and when I am inspired and then when I'm not inspired, how to reconnect myself, whether that's through connecting with others. And, you know, the, the director is definitely a person who you can lean on in those scenarios for inspiration or sort of amuse when you're working with them. But in, and Akeen and the collaborators, I remember 
a recent collaboration with Keen and just how he would find these locations and offer these ideas of different approaches of how a character can enter and there's all these different kind of possibilities and that really excites me. Um, and I, you know, it's just sort of trying to find better ways to kind of achieve that um, smoother ways, like ways that aren't so extraneous on my, you know, my, <laughs> my adrenaline and those other resources those glands that you have inside of us and um yeah i i, I you know i haven't solved that problem yet Sean, but mm -hmm. i have some concepts and you know in the quarantine it's been sort of a process of deconstructing that what that could be different ideas uh, different ways to simplify the approach you know mm. that's interesting you think there's also been a bit of a conversation, maybe tangentially, around the length of hours that we were on set here in, in the States, as opposed to what they do in Europe and other countries, and sort of uh, the, the pace, um, the kind of break times that we have, the shortness of break times. And do you think that maybe they'll continue a conversation just around sort of crew health and crew stamina? I mean, I feel like there's a that, I, I mean, it happens to me too. It's like you're just exhausted beyond measure. You know, is there? You think there'll be more conversation? You guys think there'll be more of that? Yeah, I hope so. I, I really do. I think. Yeah, it, it's important to feel comfortable. It's important to like uh, feel fresh when you're getting to work and things like that and it's not always something that can be accommodated because the way they structure film production is really towards how they uh, spend the money and what's the most efficient in the money spending realm but it's not mm -hmm. necessarily the most efficient when you're creating something of great quality so I, I think that's really important to consider when you're thinking about how the movie's going to be produced and I think really great filmmakers do think that way you know mm -hmm. and they experiment with it um, but yeah, it, it, yeah, a lot of it comes down to cast and stuff like that too. It's like how yeah. they want to work. Yeah. I know for me, something that I've been working on for for a while now is kind of correcting the energy that I started with in the industry, which was you know leaving it all on the table, leaving a piece of your soul all over the table, like in a way that was so taxing and draining that it was hard to re-engage with myself afterwards and you're losing a part of your foundation and your comfort and your your intimacy with your partner and all of those different things and and the way that i've gotten better and everything is growth and evolution but the way i've gotten better i think and it, and it also corresponds with graduating to bigger projects is i am dependent on so many people through the collaboration of filmmaking for to have the ability to create. And, and trust and communication has been freeing for me. So the more that I can sit and understand the people I'm working with and, and create a new, clearer way of conversing with them, and sometimes that's conversing about the job, sometimes that's just conversing about you as human beings, to be attentive to their needs, to be open, to, to, to have an open ear whenever available in spite of the demands of the industry has allowed me to have more trust in the people that I'm collaborating with and 
And on a larger project, unlike the cinematographer who's there behind the camera for everything, I am creating so many different sets in different locations at different times. And and that trust and that camaraderie of, of, of the team work of creation has allowed me to, to free up a little bit to, yeah, to, yeah. to not to not micromanage and, 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 and be free to collaborate in that way. I totally get what you're saying. It's like once you cultivate the trust and support and reassurance and uh, once the group is kind of banded together to protect the film, it becomes a lot easier. And that, you know, that's that's been something I really value too. It's It's been difficult in my own career because I travel so often. I've, I've sort of learned to um, connect and communicate with different crew members from different diverse backgrounds and different countries and different styles and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, when you're interviewing crew members and you're trying to figure out who your operator is or who your art director is and who the people are underneath them and how the tree falls and how you connect with all those people so that you can really have a great support system, you know? And what Chase brings up is so true, just to contextualize it, is that we're often thrust into a new country, a new state, with a lot of films chase around tax credits. So you jump in one year, there's a hot tax credit in, in Georgia. The next year, there's a hot tax credit in Louisiana. And you get thrust into a place. And oftentimes, you're not, they don't have the money to bring in all the people you've established relationships with. So you're starting fresh on the ground. And, and, I, and I think that even with our collaboration with directors and cinematographers and that, all of that, we are constantly training to be thrust into a situation, jammed oftentimes into a, a van to creative scout locations with people who you've mm -hmm. met only the, digitally like, like mm -hmm. this. Uh, and if, if and to, to have that shorthand of, of, of bonding and to try new ways of communicating. Because I know on one job, there'll be the thing that works on my lookbook, uh, whatever utensils I, I enjoy coming with. And I'll be in a situation sometimes where those same materials are not resonating. That's not how this, these new people are communicating. And so I'm constantly working to develop more tools in the toolbox. And I think, not to go on too long, but this COVID, I think, has forced us to spend more time with ourselves and take a breath and, and take a look around our, uh, and stay intimate with ourselves and, and the people we're quarantining with and but uh, constantly bombarded with all the things that are going on outside and that empathy building i think has always been an important exploration and also translates to how we communicate with people in general so when i jump into that band and i'm having a hard time communicating with something to take that breath and put yourself in those their shoes and try to understand their stresses can be the guide to, I think, better intimacy. Yeah, that's that's amazing. <clears throat> intimacy is everything on set. That's how art is sort of that comes from. That's like the creative chakra. You know, it comes from that sort of that intimate area of, of the spirit, right? Um, let's let's skip to long form for a second, like TV or or, or features. One of the things that I, Keen, we talked about last time maybe a couple of weeks ago, it was about sort of 
wanting a little bit more time um, with the writers. I always oh, figured yes. like I just figured that it would be a really it'd be really advantageous for the cinematographer and the production designer to sort of be in the last two weeks of the writers or with the writer before pre-production because it seems as soon as pre-production happens the director is sort of pulled everywhere you know so you're often in these quick meetings you know maybe you you might have his his or her focus at the for a second and then the dp might have his or her focus for a second and then the, the costume and casting and i always felt like there would be a real big opportunity for just a little time with the writers especially in the series um with the creative with the sort of department heads you know uh, what do you guys feel about that? Is that my off on that? Chase? Yeah, I uh, I love that idea. I, in fact, I never really considered it before. I think that's really unique kind of approach. For me, I sort of see it as like an opportunity to connect with a different sort of muse. And they're going to be very, very much about um, kind of the meaning behind a particular scene, which will definitely make you connect with something and probably inform like a decision going into it, which is really cool, you know? Um, yeah, I love that idea. I think that's genius. But I, I you know, I, I don't, I can't think of a, a writer that's sort of been a, a, that present on the productions that I've been on, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's sort of a, a, so much about the connection with the director. Um, but I, I love that idea because you're right. What, once you get like maybe two weeks out, it becomes uh, there's sort of a gap between you and the director because you're so hyper focused on each uh, individual task and mm. developing the skill that you're about to go into the film with. Yeah, I've experienced having a, a writer on set, and it was fantastic. Where or or experienced where the director is the writer, and. Uh, and being able to tap into that inspiration. I have a job where we go scout something and there was something beautiful about it, but it wasn't exactly right. We'd come back the next day to do pages that the script had just been adjusted to, to make that the perfect, perfect space. But I think the root of what we were talking about, Sean, when we were talking about it before was just, again, building that intimacy with the project, however that happens. So mm -hmm. having spending time with the writer, being in, in a writer's room where they're spitballing about ideas. If, if there's limitations in, in a budget, you might, they might walk out of that room and they're dead set on this, this particular thing. Had we been in that room, we might've had an idea that was better or more interesting or different or scratched the mm -hmm. same itch that allowed, uh, allowed mm -hmm. us to take advantage of those resources um, better. Cause I think, you know, our, our conversation was evolving out of oftentimes chasing something to a detriment. Right. Right. That's interesting. So that goes chasing sort of segues me to you again, Akeem, quickly around. You were talking about sort of an aesthetic desire that you have had recently that you've been sort of chasing maybe a simpler, a more pure or core simplification of your process maybe you looking to explore something? Can you talk about that a bit? Um, I, you? I think uh, you're, you're talking about the, the, the simplicity of, of the world. Yeah. Well, I'll start, I'll start 
and stay on the same theme of, of empathy. Because the, the, what I've been interested in comes from a transition of the starting place. And the starting place is, is how I break down an environment. Um, the, the storytelling aspect of it for me as a production designer can be as mundane as, as the tchotchkes on a side table or the fingernail clippings that you left out when guests mm -hmm. were over or the indentation of where your body would be on a couch or the sweat <laughs> from the back of your head on the mm -hmm. wall. And like all of these things, when I unpack a, an image, a reference photo, and I'm trying to discover a human being, I'm looking into, and oftentimes these are real photos of real people in the past that in my research I've, I've accumulated. And so not unlike a cinematographer would, would look at what the light is doing in the lines and, and what they find dynamic about the framing. I'm looking to see the history of the person in that image. You know, what are these details that I can pull out and what are the patterns that I can discover from those details that tell me not only about that individual, but where that individual is from and, and their socioeconomic level and what choices that they've made and why. And you start, once I've accumulated a bunch of these photos, I start to see these patterns and like, oh, over and over again, this human being from this neighborhood, this other human being from the same neighborhood have made similar choices. And I try to try to put my, to imagine, allow myself to be open enough to imagine what demands in their life spurred those choices. Because if I can discover that logic, now I can recreate other things that I'm not seeing in that image because I'm following the same pattern of logic. Right. And so when I make the richness of an environment and we're feeling and we're seeing, seeing all these details, all of those details to me is human respect because that is my ability to identify with anybody. That's your ability as a viewer to identify with the characters that you're looking at because you're having the same discovery or you're seeing overlapping human choices, choices that you also make. Um, maybe that you thought were special to you, but now you're seeing it in, in a stranger who's from a different walk of life than you. And so I always found that fascinating and I still do find it fascinating, but I started to be interested in, can I now like just embed that information into the walls? Could I challenge myself where none of the usual, you know, in a more surreal aspect, but none of the usual um, life layers that, that <clears throat> we, we would rely on to communicate. Can I now build a space where I've adjusted the space to elicit a feeling that is on the same pitch of, uh, of the set dressing that would describe their life. So I think it's kind of, I've been excited about the discovery of, of expression through that emotional discovery where um, I, I don't, and obviously it's project to project, but in this, my, this particular example, it's about eliciting the same feelings. I've, I've accumulated my understanding through this research, but now if I take that, that understanding and, and transition it rather in, from the physical into the emotional, how can I create emotion through color choices and, and perspectives and adjusting the build of a, of a world so that, so that you're feeling that, that, that struggle or you're feeling that passion or you're feeling that, that excitement inst instinctually. Well, that segues into my next question. And this question, I want to start with Chase. Um, it's a two-part question. I'm hoping that it's not, the first part isn't too 
abstract, but I want to talk about what you mentioned earlier today around sort of dreaming and sort of um, conceptualizing worlds based on not what's maybe possibly there, but what is sort of in your dream, dream life. Um, you mentioned that as a part of your technique. Um, and on the second, well, let's start with that. And I'll ask the second question. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it, it sort of goes into um, my sense of uh, presence. And I sort of view a scene a little bit as an event. And I don't typically try to impose any sort of pre, pre-designed thought I had in my head. Usually I'll prep that, you know, based off the sentiments of a director or, or um, the script. Do you know what I mean? My own interpretation of it. But once the actual shoot is happening, I sort of see it at like an event that I'm uh, capturing, and I try to bring it to it like a particular eye that um, you know reflects my values and the, my taste and the things that I really love. Um, you know, like uh, photojournalism and fine art still photography and particular uh, types of cinema that's full of questions. And in, in some ways, when I see a scene, I try to make a, a connection with the character, maybe a particular themes, but other times I try, um, I try to like practice a, a sort of form of naturalism that's not directly uh, uh, preempting that. It's sort of disconnected from it a little bit. It's observational. It's um, not every idea is like an an assistant to uh, the cause and effect plotting. So I try to sort of divergently think, and I try to to maybe um, look at the setting, and I'll make a connection there, or I'll imagine I'll maybe I'll read the script and I had a completely different interpretation of the scene, and I'll I'll sort of compose that. I'll sort of make those connections. Um, and then in other ways, I think I gave this example earlier, I was on a project with Khalil and some of those projects are very documentary uh, in its uh, production. You know, we're not sort of contriving anything. It's all happening. And these characters that end up in the, the work sort of make themselves vulnerable to the camera and invite me to photograph them. and. I'm always hesitant to uh, quickly react to and compose strictly information. I'm actually much more interested in uh, sort of the sensory experience a little bit, to be honest with you. I feel like uh, this, this may digress a little bit, but the, the human brain only has a certain capacity to cognitively understand information, but the sensory uh, information that your body can understand in your eyes and your ears and uh, light and all these things in your, you know, uh, other areas of your brain that aren't super connected to con- cognition will receive information in a different way. And I love images that sort of uh, make you uh, evoke or leave an impression of sublimity, um, vulnerability, um, um, maybe even pose questions that you, you, you don't know, maybe are mysterious and full attention. So in those, in those instances, I'm sort of composing the setting 
rather than the, the information of the characters, or I'll see uh, lines or geographic shapes, or um, I, I gave an example earlier of a woman sitting on a, uh, a curb outside a liquor store when we were shooting in Compton. And she sort of was taking a swig of alcohol and she sort of made herself available to me. I think we were actually wrapping out of that location. I had the camera in my hand still and I just sort of pointed at her. And at first I, you know, the immediate reaction is like, oh, there's the information. But then I sort of, I, I saw th these lines in the road and I sort of tried to connect that compositionally. And then I saw a receipt on the ground and I was really interested in the receipt. And this woman was just sort of behaving in the corner of a corner of the frame where she was cropped and she would take a swig and her head would go out of frame and she'd come back in and it just felt very magical and, and um, uh, more interesting. I don't really know. I, I think it falls into sort of the sensory response that you get from something like that. It was really, it sort of pierced me, but it was, you know, I'm, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to express is I try to find a, a unique way to present information and a lot of times in my opinion, it's about concealing it. And mm. that allows the spectator to then um, steal from their own experiences and impose them on the images. So they become more realistic in that way. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned, um, I just wanted you to sort of give us that Roy Caraba quote about that you told me about dreaming. Yeah. And he, connects to what you're saying. Yeah, he said that, um, you know, he would walk down the street and see a scene and and um, rather than just capture the information of the scene, you know, let me just describe maybe it's some people sitting on a stoop in Harlem. He would imagine uh, sort of a different scene or an approximation of a scene and he would compose this thing that he had in his head rather than what the actual thing that was happening. And it would create these compositions that were really sort of mysterious and strange and, had tension because they were either concealing what the actual scene was or um, they would take your eye into a different direction where you could actually end up studying the frame of much longer. Do you know what I mean? Like when I see his work and a lot of it comes from how he prints his photographs, um, there's sort of this veil over it that you have to sort of stare at. And the longer you stare at it, the more the information, the more the beauty and the meaning that it has to you starts to reveal itself. And I'm all about that. That's great. I'd like to, it's interesting that you say that. I'd like to talk a little bit more about technique. I don't want this to be a heavy technique conversation, but I would like to know how how do we marry technique to emotion? You know, is there a marriage there? You know, or have some? It's just sort of a complex question. Um, but I also want to sort of also think about that in opposite. Is it technique married with emotion, or how much is it what Chase was just talking about in terms of sort of this memory, like this emotional memory, intuition? You know, how often do we have a time to be inspired and just say, this is something I remember somewhere and this is why it hits me so sharply. It's like a latent, you know, discovery in some subconscious memory. Or is it, are you thinking about a technique 
on how to achieve a specific, a specific emotion. Yeah. Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I feel like, um, I'm sort of, uh, I think the best way for me to describe it is, you know, maybe a year ago I was sitting in the hospital with my mother who was suffering and, um, going through a mm. transplant from cancer and she's a jazz musician and she mentioned this um, this technique that she called woodshedding in jazz where they you know you sort of isolate yourself and you would come up with harmonic devices that when used in a set an improvisational set you could come up with a, a a particular sound that would take you out of the ordinary but the thing that I really valued in that statement it was sort of these this woodshedding idea in which you can come up with particular devices and then you can exploit them. Now, in my own regard, when I have conceived those devices, I've, I've sort of put them in my pocket and I try to exploit them in a way that they create happy accidents, which is something that I feel really precious with because I feel like in my exploration of aesthetics, when you can, be really spontaneous with a particular device and it connects with an emotion, maybe arbitrarily, but, or maybe coincidentally, it actually has an impression of uh, what I would describe soulfulness. It has something that is some almost like magical or sporadic and uh, sincere. Mm -hmm. So what I've done in the past is I'll come up with like a bunch of techniques, um, like it's almost like a full torrent of ideas just start spilling out of me. And I just, I try to put myself in a, a woodshedding or testing scenarios in which I could um, come up with those, uh, whether by accident or um, uh, maybe I, I saw something that I liked and I wanted to flip it on its head and see what happened when I, I did it in reverse. Um, mm. And then I'll sort of whittle those down to the essentials before production. And I'll keep them in my pocket. And when I see something on set, um, like I said, I'm, I'm really uh, precious with that sense of vulnerability and um, connecting with the scene. Like I sort of try to forget everything that I know about the scene and the characters walking into the blocking in the script. Like I, I sort of want to get surprised by it see something, connect with it, and then react to it with a device. And whether that device is completely arbitrary, I don't know. I'll just feel it. And in that way, to answer your question, I'm sort of sometimes repulsed by the idea in my own work, not in others. I, many, many other cinematographers do this really well. But when I've tried it, it came off really contrived. I sort of try to not necessarily connect it to an emotion. I try to give the spectator the respect and freedom to decide what that motion is and how they want to connect with it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, I feel like if I did try to come up with a particular device for every emotion that I determined was sufficient from the script, I would end up pretty much copying people. And I'm, I'm very much trying to avoid that. It doesn't really bring me as much joy because whenever I've attempted to emulate another, it never really was quite as good as the other one. <laughs> and and yeah. I'm just like, shit. Never be another person. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I always end up really feeling unfulfilled. And, yeah. and 
So I, I tried it. I, I've been experimenting with these different ways of working and it actually came through really failing, um, emulating others and failing and not really connecting. And then these sort of happy accidents sort of uh, becoming really fruitful in my work and uh, sort of uh, basically developing techniques to sort of uh, continue that. And it's not perfect and I'm always adding new ideas and I'm always changing my approach. I never have a formula for it. So, and I always get enthusiastic and inspired by new approaches because I feel like that's- Yeah, I think most. that's amazing. It's one of, the, I think the approach and the, the way you experiment with how you approach a project, whether it's the producing or the photography or whatever, the more um, uh, creative it is and the more magical it is. Yeah. Uh, that's what it, it essentially makes it unique. Yeah, I, think I love I, that. I agree with that 100%. And I love that. Similarly, but but for the process through a production designer, one thing I, I tried never to do, unless the director and the cinematographer had flagged a reference from another movie that's important to them for some for some reason, because I'm not looking at that that imagery for how the light is affecting it. I try to stay away from uh, any film references in my in my the research phase of, of creation. So I'm looking at some of the things you named before too, which is fine artists, documentary photographers, you know, all real human photographs from you know on Flickr. You can dig deep enough and find family photos that someone just uploaded their whole life on on Flickr. So I'm pulling all that stuff, and then combining with with the fine art um, references because I'm feeling, I'm looking at them and seeing an emotion, looking at that, that, that artwork and seeing an emotion that feels at one with, with the, the images or the imaginings of, of our characters. And so after calling all that, a newness creates itself, you know, where, because it's all new and fresh to me, the discovery and the understanding of these things is, is exciting um, and, and feels fresher. When I look at a, when I look at other films, yeah, exactly, a copy of a copy. Like you, what when you when someone says, "Here's this image of the film," I think they did it really well, and that's great. But our character is different than that, so me replicating a version of what they did well for their character is not the same energy of of of, of this. So instead, I'll unpack what it is we're seeing in it that we like. You know, mm -hmm. what the choices that they did that that resonated for you. And then take that pattern and apply that pattern to the to the newness of what we've been digging through. You know, that's interesting because that's very helpful, I think, for young uh, storytellers that are coming up in the business. It's the notion of, you know, voice, you know, how to sort of engage in the process of discovery and finding that, you know, and that's based on you know, the notion that you can't be someone else, the notion that what informs another cinematographer or production designer is years and years and years of living and, you know, 40 trillion, you know, bits of data that has, have been going on since you were an infant, you know? So that's, it's incredible, you know, to know, to, how do, what would you, what would you suggest for a young storyteller that, you know, does feel like they're stuck in a copying mode or they're stuck in like referencing too many, too many other cinematographers or production designers and they feel like they have to um, 
sort of compete in a way to get jobs? You know, is there how do you how do you guide them towards the process towards a voice, a personal voice? Well, um, I try to keep it really simple, and I think that would be really good sort of technique for young people to adopt because it's it can be quite extraneous trying to come up with some sort of fresh and brand new technique or something like that or an idea like sometimes it's just not in you and you can't force that stuff maybe it's not inspiring um but you know i told this story earlier but it was you know i've always considered miles davis to be one of the greatest artists to ever live because he had that that approach that was really minimal and simple he he came out of that jazz that bebop jazz and you know that the sounds that were experimenting and the harmonic devices that they were using in in that that era was very quick and and had a particular pace and particular sound yeah (laughs) and he flipped that and he came out with that long drawn out sound that just Mm -hmm. was hypnotic and beautiful and people connected with it in mass because it was so novel so Mm -hmm. fresh and that's sort of a very simple way to approach those scenarios where, you know, if you're really inspired by a particular thing, break it down, look at the devices that they used and then flip them, you know, do the reverse. Um, and I, I guarantee you they'll connect because it's, it'll be fresh. And that's sort of what you saw in it initially, that freshness, you connected with that. It was exciting. You know, when, once you get, uh, a particular technique and you start emulating it gets stale quick and I see that all the time like it you know there's these trends every you know I don't even know how often they have it happen but it's like a particular film uh, strikes a particular note with a generation and then the each generation sort of starts emulating that because maybe they re- they discovered a bit of the sentiment and the process that the filmmaker was using. So they start emulating that and, as a way to learn. But I would almost implore some, some avant-garde or young uh, aspiring directors to, to flip those ideas, take those ideas and reverse them and see, see where it takes you. Yeah. Akeem, man, I worked with you before. <laughs> That's right. I love working <laughs> and, with you. And... One thing I know about you, one thing I admire about you, there are a lot of things I admire about you, but the main thing is just your incredible, it's it's like almost it's your incredible ability to dive into something with so much study. You know, like I would look at your lookbooks. And I remember like having conversations with you and the director and you're breaking it down and it's such, it comes from a historical background. You're talking about historical context. You're talking about lifestyle. You're talking about uh, ethnicity and cultural specificity, gender. You know, I just remember sitting in a meeting with you and I'm like, hey. you know, the study, the level of study is really high. And so I just always thought of you as really courageous in your meetings because you were just like, you gonna listen to all this that I got, and you might not like it, <laughs> but you ain't gonna you ain't gonna doubt. You're not gonna doubt how long I spent on this. Talk about talk about that sort of like ethic in terms of 
you know, being a study craftsman. I just yeah. love it. I truly love it. And it's all so interconnected for me. Like, that's what I do anyways. It's like I go outside and I notice things that I think are special. And that we have the privilege of being able to create things. And first of all, thank you. Thank you for that description, uh, Sean. I, I, love, I love you <laughs> and I love that. Um, but uh, we have that privilege to go create uh, these things. And, and mm -hmm. I know that I've always had a fascination. And my fascinations change. I'll be listening to some strange physics podcasts or something that's more spiritual. And then, then I'm on to diving into some, some history. So on my downtime, I'm already kind of circulating those interests. And so when I go to create, and especially if we're doing something that's, that is a true story or is rooted in a specific time and a place and a period, I want to live there with them. And so I go deep because it's exciting for me. And, and I, I try to be humble about it too, because it, it doesn't matter to me so much if, if everybody knows all the things that I explore. I'm doing it because I'm trying to give you a space that you can walk into and, and feel that information uh, uh, in it. But, but I, I do think, and, and to give an example of some of the things we were talking about, we were talking about this earlier. It's exciting for me to be doing 1989 uh, New York, right? And, and observing the changes. So I'm, and so unlike what I was talking about before, where I'm looking at human environments, how we express humans, well, how do we express a city and the, 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 how up or down that city is? And then how did we evolve as a culture in our advancements or changes to that city? Or how did we de-evolve? And there are the patterns that I was observing when I was looking at 1989 New York uh, was, was in the course of the 90s, we got these fr frivolous, not frivolous lawsuits, but we had lawsuits. You went to the jungle gym, it's rusted out, kid falls, breaks his arm. When we were kids, that just happened. And at some point, someone was like, no, you're responsible for that. You need to change your playground. So then you look at playgrounds today and they're plastic and they're padding on the bottom and so all these protections. So then you start to be like, okay, so that's a change, the protection change. So now can I pinpoint this over and over again? If I look at the exterior of a public building now, and we're again, we're trying to make then, now in front of this building, I'm noticing that there, it's wheelchair accessible. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't have been back then. So again, hitting that same pattern. Then, then I'm looking at the, the walk, don't walk sign. And, that, and now it's a hand symbol and then it's a green walk, a man walking. Back then it just said walk, don't walk. And so my imagining of this, and, and, and I don't know this is true, but I want, I'm trying to hit the same pattern, the pattern of my understanding. What I'm imagining is at some point someone said, what if I can't read? Someone was in New York walking around, did, couldn't read those words, stepped out in the street, got hit by a car. So then someone says, when we make the new ones, we should do it with symbols and not the words. Mm -hmm. And then again, you're in an elevator. I'm looking at images of historical elevators. I'm looking at our elevators now. I'm seeing Braille, another safety mechanism, or, or an openness of an evolving culture that says, you know, if you can't see and you need to ride the elevator, I'm going to give you Braille so you can understand it too. Again, back then, we didn't have any of that. And that discovery to me is this like social evolution that 
oh, now that I've got that, that rule book, I can apply that. Now I can, can accurately predict the changes. So now I'm looking at something that I've never seen before, but I can identify what wouldn't have been there based upon this new logic and rhythm that I've discovered. And that's really exciting to me. So when I get to go back to the 1960s, it's like just to dig into all of the changes that have happened since then, it's fascinating. And then when you add on top of that, the, the sociology and the humanity and the psychology and the philosophy of the individual and a human being interacting with those spaces, I mean, that is, that is, is fascinating. And I think the root of it is a general fascination with understanding the patterns of humans in our world. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like there is, and, I, and then maybe again, I was describing it earlier as empathy, but I do feel like there is this core rhythm of humans that if you allow yourself to be open to them, that you can tap into that, that vibration and you can express them through you. And that's, that's when we're at our best, that's what we are attempting. Yeah, find, trying to find that truth. And I feel that way when I look at your work, Chase, um, particularly the work you do with Khalil, I like to maybe drill that down a little bit in terms of how you work with him. But um, I always find that I'm always really smiling when I look at your images with Khalil. It always just brings something to me. I'm like, you know, there's a truth, there's something that I'm like, that lands on 100 for me. That particular image, the way it was composed, the way it was lit, particularly or the way you use the natural lighting and finding that truth is, you know, part of its study, I'm sure, you know, all the study you've been doing in terms of, you know, all the things you've done all your life to prepare where you are today, but some of it's just, you can tell that there's the, there is this like really happy, like really joyful desire to find magic, you know, and land on something that's magical. And I, and I, I want to talk to you more about that and, yeah. and, and how you work with Khalil and how you guys do that together. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really don't know. I think <laughs> it, it's he has such a unique process in terms of how he sets up a, a shoot. Like he, he really conceals all information from me. I don't know much about locations. I don't know anything about casting. I don't know anything really, really. And you know, once the shoot's happening, it's kind of a fifty-fifty chance whether he'll be there or not. And. It puts it puts a lot of pressure on you to sort of like um, take responsibility for what you're shooting. You know, I think you get. I I used to be in this habit of really looking for reassurance and approval from the director and and uh, lean on that. But when I started working with Khalil, none of that was coming back. It was like either he was already setting something else up or or you know, he would whisper something and it's complete gibberish. You don't understand anything he's saying. Like it's all metaphors and uh, head nods or you just can't hear what he's saying because he's speaking under his, you know, his breath. And yeah, just it it really sort of put on me the responsibility to uh, take control. But what that did was it gave me autonomy. And at first it was scary, man. It was like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? I don't know. I didn't think about this when, 
when we first started working together, like I, I had no clue what I was doing, but then after the first day, I really got a hang of it. And um, yeah, it was sort of like just a playground. He set up these playgrounds and uh, you know, these sort of magical things happen. I remember, I'll give one example. We're shooting in Compton and Khalil wanted to shoot a gangster party. And we started looking at some locations and we talked about putting some bottles on the ground and letting off an ash candle and shooting some stuff in this house that we'd scouted that was completely empty. And he was just like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Then one day he finds a gangster who throws gangster parties in Compton with a, with a bunch of gangsters. And <laughs> we show up to this gangster party and just as I'm getting the camera out, a a fucking helicopter, a police helicopter starts circling the house and shining its light on the on the gangster party. And I was just like, fuck, he, that's brilliant. Like how, <laughs> there's no way he would have been able to set that up. But the way, you know what I mean? Like he sort of like, he reverse engineers everything. He allows it to grow from within. Mm. And that's such a gift to me. And I think, um, it sort of just connected on my strength. I have like a really bad memory. I forget to, to do everything. So almost any instant that I'm walking into is completely fresh to me because I don't remember anything. <laughs> so I'm just like really responding. And it created a great bond between us because I had never worked with somebody who uh, took this part of me that I always considered a flaw. And made it a virtue and uh, yeah, that's awesome it's great and now I so, yeah and i sort of brought it into everything i do now and it, it um you know it's a it, it's a juggling uh thing where you know you work with different directors who have like a particular um idea about a, a very specific thing but at the same time i i'll uh i'll set that up but i'll still try to add you know this or respond to it in in an authentic way so that it has that um, sense of soul in it. Wow. You guys are killing these questions. Man. <laughs> I hope the audience is appreciating what's going down right now. <laughs> I just um, want to say something about Akeen really quick because okay. I worked with him for a while and he just shows up and he has like his magic dust and he's so gentle and his communication skills are so <laughs> he's very gentle. and he just he just kind of <laughs> sprinkles it all over everybody and you're just kind of like wow that's great but i've been hanging out with him on the street for the last few months and this guy's like a revolutionary you know what i mean <laughs> no, he, I already he gets know. turned up and it's know. like wow damn <laughs> he's all the way turned up yeah but on set he is like this like Hey man, you know, I think we can walk over here and we can do this. <laughs> and then he's like, "Yo, totally, yeah, exactly." It's like a one exactly. man, one man, a one man BLM rally. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, like I think when we started going to the protests here, he was like, "Damn, I just sold my megaphone," and I was like, "What the fuck? Why do you have one?" Why'd you sell it? Why'd you my sell girlfriend it? and I, I think, or uh, no, someone, a friend borrowed it for, for, for a shoot and then didn't return it. But I remember <laughs> this coming up. Like, why do you, my girlfriend was like, why do you have uh, three megaphones? I'm like, because it'll come in handy one day. And then <laughs> that day came 
it. I'm like, where are my three mega uh, it's, probably, it's probably for the best we didn't find those mega <laughs> I think it was for the best. I think it was for the best. Well, I guess that goes, that can tie us into um, maybe the last question. Could be, we can, have, we can talk all day, but maybe that ties into uh, just more specificity around collaboration, especially from the DP uh, production designer side. You know, you guys have worked together before. You know, Kate and I have worked together before. It's a, it's a very special, it could be disastrous, you know, because it could be disastrous, you know, when people are at odds in that particular process because it's so much of the image is production design, you know. Um, how do you guys, well, talk about personally how you guys collaborate and, and maybe talk about some of your other collaborations with other, equal, you know, can you use cinematographers and chase through production designers and, and talking about I, how that collaboration works. I learn, I learn, you know, and with Chase, I learn. Sean, with you, I learn, you know, and, and it's the best, it's the best film school I could ever imagine because you, you guys don't get to work with other cinematographers. So I get to see all of these different sensibilities and be re-inspired and, and, and excited over and over again. You know, and the last job that Chase and I did, uh, there was the locations manager was was uh, had some difficulties with some of the locations that we had locked in. Images had been shared with Chase. He wasn't there on the ground yet. The director and I had scouted all, all of these things and locked in things that were very appropriate. Then we were losing them, and we were losing them right before the shoot. So the pivot, the questions became to me: Can you make this other thing work? So my energy went to: I can make it work here's what we're going to need to do. Here's how we'll do it. And it's this kind of reacting to it. Chase came in with fresh eyes and we walked into a space. He's like, let's just do it here. And we all kind mm -hmm. of like looked around and was like, oh yes, yes, that's the, that's the right answer. And because of that, the intensity of the moment and the, the forced pivot, mm -hmm. both the director and I weren't seeing that. We were, you know, trying to put the pieces back, Humpty Dumpty back together again. Mm -hmm. And then Chase comes in with Fresh his swag eyes. and is like, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> mm. And uh, and it was beautiful and magical. And even in in our spending time together out here in New York, riding our bikes in, in the streets, just watching, watching him receive information and how he videotapes or how he positions his camera and that in investigation that he was describing before is so fascinating and exciting for me. So mm -hmm. I think that the freshness, and that's another beautiful thing about what we get to do is that each new journey is with new collaborators or it's with collaborators that you develop relationships with and you're going in to discover a new world together. And that, that, is, uh, that is so fascinating. On all my jobs, I. All my jobs, I think, I've always had a very close relationship with, with the cinematographers. Yeah. For that purpose, I want to, and not every cinematographer is a great communicator either. So you, there mm -hmm. are people who you want to just stand near them and kind of pick up their energy. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and so many have been super blessed with the cinematographers I've, I've been able to work with. And oftentimes when I'm considering a project, that's my first question. Okay, who's, who's shooting it? 
you right. know, because I, I want to look at the context of this content through my imaginings of that person's world building and understand it. And I'm so excited by cinematographers, you know, to you two in particular, but in general as well, that I'm not offended if you go into a room and you find a great angle that misses all that great stuff I put in that room. <laughs> because we're in the same pursuit. And the right. same pursuit is how to express this emotion. So I put all this stuff in there because if you need it, it's there. And that's also expressive. But if you can do it by looking up here and we're feeling the ceiling and there's just that one crack in the ceiling and there's a little bit of water stain right there and that is all we needed to know to understand and connect, then I embrace it. So, so yeah, that, that understanding, that collaboration if there's an office for the cinematographer, go tap on that door, sit and talk. You know, for, for the people who are coming up, like know each other well. There are the conversations you'll have with the director. I think when I was coming up, it would oftentimes just be me. I'd only have be with the cinematographer when the director was there. But now, especially on each, each feature film, like my closest confidant outside of the director is gonna be the cinematographer. We're sitting in the room together. We're, having dinner together we're building and investigating and world building together because what we do together is the look of the film so if we're not humming then then i'm not doing as good as i could with what i present and that communication is so important and i feel like you can you can see the difference you know you can Definitely. you've watched films where you're like oh there's these people are on two different pages and those both pages might be good pages, but you're like, this is not the same book. Um, and then the films I think we all resonate to, whether you identify it or not, are the films where costume and production design and cinematography and direction and the actors are all like finding that vibration together. And, and whatever your path is to find it, like what Chase was describing with his style is so, I've watched him work, it's beautiful, it's incredible, it's inspiring. Also, not everybody's style. Like you said, there's other people that, that find their paths in different ways. But if you can find that, whatever your way is, it needs to be a communal understanding. Yeah. So that uh, so that we're, because I think the hope is always that an idea starts here or the script starts here. And you're, you to communicate with the director and he brings all this extra energy into it. And then you throw out ideas and you're already up here. And then Chase shows up, boom. And, and he's got I, all these ideas that you couldn't see yet, which inspire you. And then you're like, boom. Then my set decorator is like, boom. And my art director is like, boom. And all of a sudden we've, we've constructed a, a castle. And what we started with was, was a shack. And some people get stuck in the shack. Yeah. No. You want to add to that? Damn. Yeah. Uh... There's a lot. That's a lot <laughs> that was, of heaven. That was dope. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Uh, well, it's always a pleasure working with Akeem because he sort of he complements the stuff that I'm uh, attempting to achieve really well. Like he, he said, um, he sort of sets up the environment and, uh, in ways that there's a lot of different influences. And what the biggest gift to me that a, a production designer could give is when I walk on the set and we're about to block, there's not just one way the scene could be shot. There's like 10 different ways and they're all beautiful and to me that's that Roy de Carava shit that's that Alex Webb shit that's that that's like those guys aren't 
setting that shit up like a, with no, a production designer. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's like they see it and they're responding to it and they're kind mm-hmm. of like, they're sort of in harmony with the, the place. And when I get to work with great, uh, great production designers, um, and their sets are, are set up that way. I just feel like I have a rhythm and they're in tune with me and there's harmony between the two of us. And it, it just sort of flows and it happens naturally and it's not extraneous. And it, it, the, the, the results are just um, constantly yielding uh, magic, you know? Um, so it, it, it I've worked with a lot of great production designers like that too, you know, uh, Akeem's like one of the greats and, you know, Jade is amazing at that too. Like I remember doing a job with Miles uh, River shooting in LA and the way she set up that, um, that motel there just like allowed the steady cam to kind of flow in the room and we moved the actors in a way that complemented like that room did not look like that when we walked in and we had a very limited time to set that up but everyone just had a nice rhythm with each other so it, it was it, it, you know that's the really the gift that's the gift of collaboration there those tungsten lights that you had as practicals were that did you guys put those was those, those added to that hotel exterior or uh, uh the the green lights kind of outside the... it was like a green yeah like it was it was like this sort of color it was like a color contrast between contrast, tungsten yeah and sort of a, a mercury thing that you had totally like um so the practical layout when we came into the room was all on the other opposite side we moved the 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 credenza over to kind of closer to the bed and perpendicular to it um, on the other side of the room where uh, one of the musicians sits. And I put a practical there and I think there was another practical uh, that was wall mounted and I turned them both on and that gave me enough exposure on on Leon. But then I added uh, probably two, I think, LED panels overhead there. Mm -hmm. I, I, put black wrap on them so they weren't spilling on the walls and I put some green gel on it and it, mm-hmm. the green gel was sort of an arbitrary choice I, I felt like if it was just too perfect I didn't want it to feel romantic the room I wanted to I'm always trying to do this thing called romantic realism you know yeah. it's like um, the image is so beautiful and it's hypnotic and it's contrast and it's the quality um, but there's sort of a rawness to it as well. There's imperfections, there's all these things. So maybe the light's flickering in the background. Like I'm always trying to marry those two things so that they, they kind of merge together where um, there's a sense of tension, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it really worked in that. Yeah, the lights outside were there already. It was sort of a mm-hmm. gift that the location gave us, which I, I wasn't really yeah. involved in any of the choices there, but they, I know that they looked for a lot of stuff and they found that, and it was such a gift. Um, when he goes out on the balcony and there's, and, and there's rain, that mm-hmm. I lit in an artificial way, I remember, but I can't remember exactly. We had a very small crew. Um, Mike Cruz was the gaffer. It was my first time working with him. Um, he did lemonade with me. I haven't worked with him in a while, but he, he's a magnificent gaffer. One of the real dudes out there. Um, yeah, great. We had a question come in 
from Aaron about <laughs> about the demonstrations um, and your experiences here. You guys have all, you guys have done the whole quarantine period in New York, right? Um, yeah. And you guys have both been involved in some of the demonstrations here. Um, talk a little bit about your experiences and what you kind of just in any way you want to talk about it emotionally. What you, what you, what's your experience? What you, I mean, tell me about your experiences. Yeah, I, I, I could start that off, Akeen, if that's cool. Uh, Akeen gave me a great gift. I was in kind of a perpetual state of grief, kind of coming uh, out of the quarantine and the summer was hitting and Akeen sort of suggested that we take our bikes out and we go on a journey. And I was like finding any excuse to say no to it because I was still suffering, right? And I couldn't think of an excuse. So I ended up meeting up with Keen and we took the bikes out and joy just like entered my life again. It was so precious and I'm so grateful to you for that. And he gave me one of his bikes as a loner that then I really connected with and I ended up getting my own bike. And at some point within a couple of weeks after that, uh, I downloaded the Citizen app um, and it pinged like an alert right where Keen lived. And I was like, oh shit. And I, I remember moments before that happened, you know, I'm in a black neighborhood or mixed neighborhood. I'm in Clinton Hill, let's die. Uh, and I remember one of my neighbors, young kid coming outside, just screaming at the top of his lungs. I'm fucking angry. And it was just like maybe a couple of days after George Floyd had been murdered. And I felt that, I felt his words. And I remember being uh, energized by his pain. And when I saw Keen was, you know, in sort of the mix in his hood, I went outside immediately. I, I think I was on the phone with Inval too, because she was concerned. And it, their neighbors actually, they live like a couple doors down from each other and I started biking down that direction and right outside my place was a row of cops and uh you know there was like maybe 50 to 75 protesters being followed by maybe five uh, SUVs and uh, maybe eight cops on on foot in riot gear I think and uh it kind of stops in this intersection or maybe a block from where Keen is and the protesters are yelling at these cops and then all of a sudden this bottle flies and it smashes at one of the cars and i looked at these cops and they were scared you know and uh, i remember really uh, sensing that this was going to be crazy and a, a moment later keen pulled up on me and then we just spent the whole night kind of exploring what was happening in fort green and, and bedsty and clinton hill and it was just chaos and there was so much um, pain and suffering and the sentiment of the people and aggression and violence and the sentiment of the police. And, uh, you know, Keen and I just kind of, you know, we're there supporting each other, protecting each other, trying to keep, keep each other out of harm's way. But it was really great sort of rendezvousing in that way. And then as the days went on, um, we kept going out. You know, we kept going out at, at night and in the day, um, and it's still ongoing. I mean, the Occupy City Hall is in full 
a yeah, full swing. I, I went, I went last night for about three or four hours, and Akeem went the night before. We haven't gone together, but uh, I'm sure that's going to happen in the next few days because uh, it's crazy. Wow, I'm I'm proud of of a lot of a lot of them are kids, like young kids out there. I'm proud of all of them, and because. You know, people were sitting at home and they were stuck at home and they felt like they can't take this shit anymore. And that sense of urgency was out there. That first night, it was unexpected. It came to us, arched down our street, but the anger was palpable and the demand for change was was loud. And it's still loud. The news might not be covering it, but the protests here in New York are as big as they've ever been. And and that that energy is not is not weakening. And that de- demand for change is not quieting. So my hope is that we demand it until it changes. Uh, and I remember prior, prior to this, even before George Floyd, I was watching all these videos of young black men being attacked by cops for not wearing their mask. Which is so crazy to me. That, yeah. like, you're punishing a person because you're scared that they may be spreading a virus, but they were being attacked by police officers that were not wearing masks, that were in their faces touching and sharing and spreading. And it's so disheartening because you, the, the feeling is like you're, it's just so illogical. It's just so illogical to me. It was the Why same old shit with just a new excuse to, to dominate same old shit and humiliate. excuse. That's the, that's the main thing. I think with that, we have to be clear around, you know, because that internalizing all that in this time where, you know, Chase, you were talking about a heavy time of just being dark and depressed for a while. I think it's important that we love on each other, you know, and especially as men, I think, you know, we don't have a lot of times we're not given the latitude to be emotionally expressive and, you know, express, you know, love, you know. I know that during this time, I've been connecting with Bradford a lot. We've been working out every morning, super early. He's a beast, you know, he's killing me. But uh, <laughs> it's been nice just to be with him and other cinematographers. That's what motivated those crazy. bike rides, those bike rides. Was, I knew you guys were working out every day and I was like, I gotta yeah. set up my my <laughs> <laughs> And, um, but you know, what's important though is like, you know, you know, every time we leave each other, you know, I love you, boy, I love you, Sean. You know, Baba Kwesi, we work our way. I love you, you know. And every time I talk to you, Akeem, you say the same thing to me. I love you, I love you, Akeem. It's important. So now I'm going to add that to Chase and I see, you know, just this is important to make sure that we, you know, not always sort of just allow, you know, be impacted upon and react, you know, to an ex- external, we know external dysfunction, which is clear. And there's an ex- external dysfunction that is impacting our lives. We also have to make sure that we're very clear around how we love on each other and ourselves and that we create spaces of joy and camaraderie. So I'm glad you guys are doing that. Yeah, it's been it's been so magical just seeing sort of the you know, at first it started out as anger and then it became about security, support and protection of each other and uh I mean so much joy and it brought, you know, the event uh just 
brought a sense of community back into our souls here in New York because that had been void for so long. You know, when you're forced into isolation and you can't, you know, for your own, you don't feel safe being around others. Like it's, it was just fucked up and that's not how New York is. Um, mm. So once these sort of things sparked off, I think it was really, really joyful and it sort of gave meaning to a lot of people's lives again. And that's why it's so different. And that's why there's this, um, uh, this sort of multiracial uh, essence to it that hadn't been that way in the past, you know, and uh, I see a lot of uh, um, black people and organizers in those, in those areas, in the protests, saying that, you know, speaking their pain and swaths of people listening and empathy. Sitting, listening to, to, yeah, st staying available, learning, re-educating. Yeah. It's a conversation. It's been a long time coming. It's like a real proper, yeah. you know, opening of, opening of the, of the records and the truth. And, yeah. you know, it's a long time coming. It, it's so cold here too in this particular neighborhood because I think it is like 50-50 white and black. It's probably the most racially diverse neighborhood in America. And I went down to Fort Greene on Juneteenth and there's this little like party that just popped up on the street and they blocked the streets and you could just see like all the the white people in the neighborhood like standing in a row with their bikes protecting all the you know black people in the, the middle that were like having their fun and it was just like no you're not coming in here fuck you police <laughs> like go on go yeah, on yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. You know, all these things are just happening sporadically. It's not like it's so cool, it's so special. Yeah, I, I do think there is like a a movement toward. I, mean, I think everyone's sort of tired, you know, and we like yeah. we want we all want to experience joy. And I think what we tend to forget, what we have forgotten in the past, is that we do live. We're not separate. It's this illusion of it's the illusion of separatism and fear, of separation and fear that creates all evil basically and, and human yeah. it's, you know we got to know that we're all connected and if one community is under duress even if you're you think you're safe in your privilege or wealth or or separation you still feel it your children feel it it's a psychic yeah. feeling yeah. that's in the air and so eventually it's gonna it's gonna reach you so it's it's best to for us to work on everyone's joy yeah. to really for all of us to really have joy because we're not safe yeah. I totally agree I agree. I love you, Sean. I love you too, Akeem. I, <laughs> I love you, Chase. Chase. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Sean. I love you, Keith. <laughs> All right, man. So I think you're up. I think that's it. I hope the audience right. enjoyed it. And thanks for having us.